Man, what a beautiful time of worship, huh? I like, and the Celts talk about this principle of thin places. Like there's occasionally these places where it feels like heaven and earth are close, right? Where we get a glimpse of heaven or a taste of what heaven is actually like. And I don't know, the weather today feels a little bit like that glimpse, right? Being out here today feels a little bit like that glimpse. And so uh, thank you guys for leading us uh, so well this morning. Uh, we're excited that you guys are here. Welcome. Uh, we are in Nehemiah, uh, and so we started a series last week called Rebuild, where we're talking about the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to walk chapter by chapter through the book of Nehemiah. And, and here's the crazy thing about us preaching Nehemiah. We are not doing a building campaign right now. <laughs> All right, so the only time anybody ever preaches Nehemiah is when they're like, we're going to rebuild the sanctuary, or we're going to rebuild the parking lot. Our, our building campaign is right here. It's done. Uh, and it's amazing, and we're thrilled about it and excited about it. Yes, thank you, Ryan. Uh, and, uh, but but we're, we're, we want to talk about this through a different lens. We, we don't want to talk about bricks and mortar that we're building, but we want to talk about how do we rebuild what's been broken in the last year and a half in our country? How do we rebuild what's been broken in our community over the last year and a half? How do we rebuild what's been broken in our own lives and in our own families? And there is this collective trauma that we've been through, and for some, I realize it's much more severe than others, but all of us have experienced pain and wounds and brokenness and hurt over the last year. And here's the thing about being a follower of Christ. Every follower of Christ is a rebuilder. Every follower of Christ is a rebuilder. Our job is restoration. Our job is putting the pieces back together again. The story of the Bible is God putting his family back together again through Christ. And we are a part of that family and we're invited into the restoration of all things. And so the question is not uh, uh, when do we rebuild? The question is how do we rebuild? We're always rebuilding. We're always putting the pieces back together again. We're always the first to reach out for forgiveness. We're always the first to love and to show kindness. We're always the first to sacrifice and to give ourselves away. And so as I've been thinking about this message, I, I, I went back and I started looking at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for a minute. And I know that's not Nehemiah, but it's in the same kind of framework, right? We're in the same kind of series and in the, in the same kind of world. And here's this interesting thing. Uh, when Shadrach and ne Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire in Daniel chapter 3, verse 27, when they came out of the fire... Here's what it says. It says, The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. So they had been thrown into the fiery furnace, uh, but, but in the fiery furnace, the Lord protected them. The Lord took care of them. And here's what it says after this. It says, The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And, and listen to this. No smell of the fire came upon them which seems kind of insignificant, right? Last night, we had a fire in our backyard. Not like a call the fire department, but like we, we had a little campfire in our backyard. It was just a perfect night. My wife and I sat in the backyard. We got a little fire going. The kids came out for five minutes and got bored and went inside, and we sat and talked for hours and just kind of hung out out there. And, and when I came inside, you know what happened? I smelled like the fire, 
Right? If you're around a campfire for a little while, that smoke, and you know how the smoke like just starts, like you pick a spot, you pick a chair, and everything blows to that chair, and then you move across to the other chair, and then everything blows to that chair. Like I have, I don't know what it is, but the smoke loves me, right? I got that smoke, right? And it's wherever I go, it just follows me, and it, 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 it seems to follow. So I walk in, uh, and, I, and I have this smell of smoke on me, but here's the thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they walked out of the fire, there wasn't even a smell of smoke. There wasn't even a hint of smoke on them. And here's what, I, here's what hit me in, as, as I was thinking about this and I was looking at this passage. I feel like through the last year, we've been in the furnace. It's been stretching. It's been difficult. It's been challenging. And many of us have emerged now, and we're, we're not singed. We're not damaged. We're still standing strong. But the problem for many of us is that there's a smell on us right now right? So part of the smell on me right now is, is I, I'm a little wounded. I'm a little, irrita- I'm a little irritable. I'm a little tired. Anybody else with me? And so we're coming out of the fire. We're coming out of the furnace. And we've been through this, this season of, of, of growing and, and joining together. And as we come up out of that fire, what, what happens is there's a smell on us. There's something that we carry out of that fire. And the question is, are we actually going to allow God to rebuild ourselves, to rebuild our own hearts, to allow us to walk out of the furnace, to walk out of the challenging places, and to walk into a new place. Because some of us, the fragrance that's on us is not the fragrance of Christ right now. And so we've got to do the inner work. We've got to do the paying attention to our emotions and to our heart and to our life and to our attitudes and to the way that we talk to our kids and the the way that we talk to, to, to our wife and our spouses. All of those things we've got to pay attention to because the smell that's on us is carrying it with us. And I know that this has been a hard week. Right? Again, we hear another story of another black man killed by police and we know that we have rebuilding that we need to do. We hear another story of, of a shooting in a, in a place in Indianapolis that I used to drive by almost every day where there was another mass shooting. We hear the story of another friend who has ongoing health issues has been hospitalized. We hear the story of another older Asian woman who's beaten up on the street. We hear all of these stories and all of these things come at us from the media and all of these things come at us from all different directions and we just get overwhelmed with it. And what I believe that God is looking for is he's looking for rebuilders. I think God is searching for rebuilders. I think God has always been searching for rebuilders. Who are the people that are actually going to step into the gap and begin rebuilding the things that have been broken? And so Nehemiah is crazy because Nehemiah is actually the book on leadership. It's really funny to me because when I read leadership books, I love leadership books. Anybody with me, you just love to pick up a good leadership book, a good management book, something like that. I love that stuff. I nerd out on lots of different things. That's one of the things I nerd out on. But, but here's the thing, like every one of those books I read, I find all these principles here in Nehemiah. It's all rooted in this one place and in this one space, and it's rooted into how this one leader began to transform the world around him. And and there's two types of leaders in the world. I'm going to draw this on the whiteboard, realizing that not all of you can see the whiteboard. I get it. Uh, But I'm going to draw it. I'll tell you what I'm drawing. And so I I think we've got a category here of these two types of leaders. One and two. And, and, And one type of leaders are the dreamers. Where are my dreamers out there? We got one. 
Well, we've got, we got a couple. All right. I, I, I'm guessing there's more dreamers. You're just not raising your hands. Right? You, there's dreamers. They're people that love to come up with ideas. They love vision. They love to think about what could be. They love to see the future. They're always thinking in futuristic terms. And the other side is the planners. Where are my planners at? A couple planners? Yeah. And, and what planners are doing is they're always thinking about how do we take care of what's happening now? How do we build the roads that get us to the future destination? And, and, and sometimes these two groups are at odds, right? We, we don't love each other all the time because the dreamers are like, I got this huge vision. I know what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to do this. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do that. And then my wife says to me, no, we're not, right? That's not feasible. That's not possible. That's not the way the world works, Ben. But here's what we can do to make it work. And here's what happens. When dreamers and planners are able to work together, things get rebuilt, so we don't just have dreamers. Another way to talk about it is we have pioneers who are able to take new ground. And we have settlers who are able to take care of the ground that's been taken. Uh, oftentimes, uh, these folks embrace change. Dreamers love change. Planners, they resist change. They are not the biggest fans of change, and they want to know the logistics and what's happening when change happens. Uh, when you think about the fivefold gifting in Ephesians chapter 4, what we have here is we have our apostles, our evangelists, and over here we have our teachers and shepherds. And our prophets kind of bounce back and forth, right? It depends on how your prophetic gift works. But we have kind of these, these groups that we, we set up. The way we talk about this at Grace is we talk about we have renegades and we have rooted. We are rooted and renegade. We are rooted in the word. We're rooted in our community. We're rooted in the place that we are. We're people that have been planted in a specific place. And so for us at Grace Marietta, we are rooted in the word of God. Every week, we're going to open up the scriptures. We're going to pray through the word of God. We're going to talk about the word of God. We are rooted in that. We believe that this is valuable stuff, and we're going to go over it over and over again. And we're rooted in this community. We're rooted in this place. We're rooted right down the street from Wheeler High School. We're rooted around these houses. And so we're going to be a neighborhood parish where we love the church and we love the community around us and we care for our neighbors and we reach out and we try and meet needs and we try and love and bless and serve and care for the community around us. But we're also got this little thing where we're a little renegade, where we actually believe that we want to wreck the roof, that we want to think about new things. We want to discover new ways to get people to Jesus, that sometimes we're going to rock the boat. Sometimes we're going to ask tricky questions. Sometimes we're going to say things that are, that are a little on the edge because we're renegade in our nature. And so there are two types of leaders. There are rooted leaders and there are renegade leaders. But the beautiful thing about this book is Nehemiah knew how to operate in both of these spaces. Nehemiah is a guy who has huge dreams, and in chapter 1, God, he, he, God starts to stir with him. And, and what happens is, as, Nehemiah, as God starts to stir in Nehemiah, what happens is Nehemiah realizes that rebuilding always begins with the heart. That's the first part we're going to talk about today. Rebuilding always begins with our heart. And so inside of Nehemiah, there's this, he, he gets news of Jerusalem. He's, he's off in Babylon. He gets news of Jerusalem. He gets news of his people. He gets news of all the things that are going wrong. And it says, my people are a laughing stock. And immediately, what does Nehemiah does? He begins to mourn. 
He begins to lament. His heart is broken. He's sad for the things that are happening in his community. He's sad for the things that are happening for his people. One of the greatest ways that we know and understand what our kingdom calling is and what our kingdom dream is, is what breaks your heart. There's a reason why something breaks your heart. There's a reason why something stirs in you, and when you hear stories of it, you mourn and you lament and you're broken about it. It's because God's placed that thing inside of you. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. It's a really funny job. He's the cupbearer to the king. And, and he's not a priest. He's not a pastor. He's not a leader. He's not a ruler of nations. He's just the guy that brings refills to the king. That's his job. But here's what he has. He's close to the king. He's always close to the king. And so he begins to weep and he begins to mourn and he begins to pray and he takes all of these things to God. And here's what Nehemiah does that many of us don't do. He begins dreaming with God. Oftentimes what we do is we dream apart from God. We have all of these dreams and visions and five-year plans and two-year plans and this is where I'm going to be and this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm going to do next year and this is how I'm going to get there. And we come up with all those plans, but we don't enter into it with God. And so he opens up this space inside of his mourning and inside of his brokenness where he actually believes that the Holy Spirit is empowering his dreams, that the Holy Spirit is actually walking with him and guiding him. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite writers. I like old guys. Uh, A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite writers. He said this. He said, if you took the Holy Spirit out of our Sunday services in the modern church, and this was not in modern days that he said this. This was 50 years ago. 95% of what happens in the church would still happen and we wouldn't even notice it. If you take the Holy Spirit out of the New Testament, 95% of what happens doesn't happen. And so one of the things that we see from Nehemiah is he begins dreaming, but his dreaming is connected to planning because he's taking and submitting and surrendering his dreams to the good father. And he's saying to the Lord, Lord, this is breaking my heart. I think you've called somebody to do something and I'm willing to step in. And so our dreams always begin with our heart. So what is God breaking your heart for? What's he stirring in your heart? What does it look like for you to dream together with God, for you to surrender your dreams to him and say, all right, Lord, what do you want to do with this? The second thing that we see comes out of Nehemiah chapter 2, and it's that rebuilding requires risk. Rebuilding always starts with the heart, but rebuilding at some point is going to require some sort of risk for us. And so Nehemiah shows up into the presence of the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer. So his job is to, this is a silly job. It's literally to drink the cup before the king does and make sure there's not poison in it. It doesn't seem like a real pleasant job, right? Like it's, if, if, if anybody's going to try and assassinate the king by giving him some poison wine, Nehemiah's in trouble, right? Because he's the one that's going to drink it first. But here's what he does have. It's a weird job, and he's not a priest, and he's not a pastor, and he doesn't have a lot of authority, but what he has is he has proximity. He has proximity and favor with somebody who can do something. And sometimes this is how our dreaming starts. Our dreaming starts with an idea that stirs in us. It starts with this passion and then excitement, and then it starts to think, who can help me make this dream happen? Who is around me? What do I have that I can leverage to make this dream happen? And what Nehemiah had was a relationship with the king. All of us have something to bring to the table when we think about rebuilding. 
Like, I love looking at this park and knowing how this got built. Because this got built because a whole bunch of people, an entire church, over a two-year period of time, lots of different people sacrificed financially so that we could afford this. This wasn't paid for by one person. It wasn't paid for by two people. It was hundreds of people who gave money so that this dream and this vision could actually happen. It happened because we have leaders who have expertise in lots of different areas. So we found some people who were experts in construction, and they helped us build a plan. They helped us work with construction units. We had experts in electric who came and set up the electric. We had experts in plumbing and drainage who helped us figure out the drainage system. We had all of these people together who knew experts. And here's how it started to happen. We said, we got a dream. We want to create a park. Well, we got to come up with a plan. So we get a blueprint together. We hired a company. Somebody knew a company. So we hired that company. We interviewed a couple of them. We found one that worked. And, and, and then we're, there were all kinds of different people who started pitching in in different places. And I cannot tell you how many times I spoke to people about the park. And you know what they would say to me? I know somebody. I know somebody who dot, dot, dot. I know somebody who can help with this. I know somebody who might do this cheaper than what you can get it here. I know somebody who could figure this part out. I know somebody who has a discount on chairs. I don't like, there were all of these different things that came up because what happened was when the family got together and started dreaming together, we had a dream, but we also had planners and we also had connections. So verse uh, one in chapter two, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Listen to this. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And listen to how Nehemiah responds. Then I was afraid. Because here's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah had entered into mourning. He had entered into brokenness. And, and, and this, is, this is kind of a tricky relationship because King Artaxerxes, if you study history, is not the nicest guy all the time. Right? Go back and just do some work on him. You can watch some movies that are out there. Like this, this guy is a warrior king. This guy has no problem killing people. This guy would have no problem saying, Nehemiah, you displease me off with your head. Like that's the kind of king that he is. And so Nehemiah had learned that when I'm in his presence, I'm happy. I'm going to pretend like I'm happy even when I'm not happy. I'm going to smile even when I'm not smiling on the inside. I'm going to show something to him because I don't want there to be consequences. But in this moment, Nehemiah intentionally shows his sadness and his mourning and his brokenness. It's an enormous risk that he takes in the presence of the king. And I don't know how Nehemiah worked this out. I don't know if his plan was, I'm just going to look sad until the king asks me a question, and then I'm going to tell him what I really need. I don't know if he just really was sad, and, the, and it just happened this way. I don't know what the plan was, but there was great risk here. And it says in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lie in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is really interesting. Because the king could have said, oh, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> the king could have said, oh, man, cheer up, buddy. The king could have said, hey, take the day off tomorrow. Get a little break. But Nehemiah was a leader who had built up enough trust with the king and had shown himself worthy and faithful long enough that the king says, what do you want? 
What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Listen to this. It's so amazing. He's standing before someone who he could have favor with. This is, a, this is the definition. Like This is the book on leadership of how we ask for favor in the presence of others. We know what we want to ask for. We have enough plans that we know what we need to do. We have a dream and we have a vision and we also have this picture of I'm going to pray and I'm going to surrender all of this to the Lord. So he prays to the Lord of heaven. He says to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah. Send me to the city of your father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when, he had given him, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of province beyond the river that I might pass until I come to Judah. Like he doesn't just say, can I go? He actually makes a request. He doesn't just say, I've got this vision, I've got this plan. He has a very intentional plan that he says, this is what I need. I need a letter so that I can get all the way there. And he doesn't stop there. He says, uh, where are we? Verse 8, and the letter to Ashphaph, I need a keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. And the king gave me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. Uh, one of the things my mom used to say all the time when I was growing up is you don't get when you don't ask. And sometimes I actually believe we don't ask because we don't believe the kingdom is big enough. We don't ask because we're afraid. We don't ask because we don't actually believe that the Holy Spirit is undergirding every dream that we have that involves rebuilding. That when we move our hands to the task of restoration, the Holy Spirit is the one who's leading us and guiding us. And his power is so far beyond ours that we can dream dreams that we couldn't accomplish on our own. We can ask for things that we couldn't get on our own. And we can accomplish things that we couldn't accomplish on our own. But there has to be that step of risk. And so what often happens is we have these dreams, we have these things that break our heart, but we don't have the planning and the preparation and the risk. That's the third thing I want to talk about today is rebuilding requires planning and preparation. It requires planning and preparation. There is imagination in all of this, but there's also implementation. The Bible is full of passages about counting the cost. And it's silly it's actually silly how many passages in the Bible go into extensive links to describe how things are built. Have you noticed this? Like, has anybody read the story of Noah building the ark and actually thought, you know what, this is really practical for my everyday life. I'm going to, like, get these dimensions and start something in my backyard. No. I've been a part of tons of building campaigns where churches have built new sanctuaries and none of them have said, you know what we need to do? Let's open up the Old Testament and figure out how they built the temple and let's go through those 85 chapters that describe in great detail what the temple's supposed to be like so that we can do this. So why is it in there? Like, why is there these huge lists of what needs to be in the tabernacle and what needs to be in the inner courts and the outer courts? Why is this huge list of here's how you build the ark and here's how you build this part and here's how you build this part? And here's, like, the reason why is because God cares about the details. And he wants us to learn to care about the details as well. And so we plan and we prepare. Scripture always talks about you cannot build on sand. You can't build something where moth and rust are going to decay. 
But if we don't count the cost and pay attention and plan, we actually won't get anywhere. Luke chapter 14, verse 28 says this, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first, down and, first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, once you've laid the foundation and are not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock you, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with his 10,000 to meet those who come against him with 20,000? And so here's what happens, guys. This happens all the time, and we're seeing it in our community right now. We have a dream. God sparks up a dream inside of us. God sparks up a vision inside of us. We're excited about it. We're fired up about it. We're ready to go do it. And then when it comes time for us to go do it, we don't count the cost. And so it seems easy when we plan and difficult when we actually have to step into it. You know what the greatest resistance to us talking about kingdom dreams in our community is? You know what I hear more than anything from anybody? I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm working. I got kids. I got to watch my... Netflix series that just came out. I'm, I'm running down everything. I'm chasing everything down. And this is where we need to pair our dreams with plans. This is where those of you who are dreamers need to look around you and see who else in our community are planners and connect with each other. Like, I think part of our role as a church is to connect beautiful ideas, connect the vision of God and say, you know who can help you get there? You know who's somebody you need to talk to. You know, you know who's somebody who can help you figure that out. You know who you need to pay attention to. All of those kinds of things. But because our dreamers need planners. I'm a dreamer, guys. But I'm terrible at building anything. Because I have, a, I have seven ideas before I eat breakfast. I'm not kidding. You can ask my wife. I drive her crazy. I have seven different visions of ridiculous things of how we can do stuff. And I'm always so excited about it. But I have no idea how it actually works or how it's going to get there because I'm bad at counting the cost. And so I need somebody to come alongside of me and say, listen, that's a beautiful vision. It's a great dream. But if we're going to do this, here's the cost that's associated with it. Here's the plans and the preparation that has to happen. Here's what needs to be developed so that those ideas can come to life. I think the church in America has become experts at talk and inept at the walk. Like we are so good at talking about the mission that we're going to do. We're so good at talking about discipleship. I read a, a survey this week. 500 pastors, right? 500 pastors were surveyed at a recent conference, and they were asked, how many of you were discipled by someone? You know how many of the 500 said they'd been discipled by someone? 19. We're great at talking about discipleship. We're bad at doing it. We're great at talking about mission. We're bad at doing it. Like we expect everything to be easy and simple. And here's the reality. If we're going to be rebuilders, it's going to cost us something. Because there is ground that the enemy will contest. Are you with me? And we think about battles. There's battleground that, that the enemy's like, that's fine, you can have that ground. I think the enemy will give up a lot of Sunday ground. Like, I think the enemy's fine with us having big, giant church gatherings where we sing some songs, but it never impacts our community. It never makes a difference to our neighbors. I think when it gets contested is when we start walking across that street. 
I think when it gets contested is when we start loving and caring for our neighbors. I think when it gets challenging is when we move beyond this space and move out into the world and move into our workplace and move into all the different places. So what did Nehemiah do? This is, this is hard. I'm, I realize this is hard. Nehemiah gave up everything. I think of the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What do I have to do to get in the kingdom? What do I have to do to follow you? What do I have to do? He says, I need you to sell everything you have and go come back. He gave up everything. What needs to happen if we're really going to pursue our kingdom dreams is we have to radically reorient our lives around God's vision for our lives. And that means sacrifice. That means that we give up some things. That means that we step forward into other things. It means we sacrifice. It means we say, I can't do this. When I was a young leader, I, I was this dreamer, and, and I, I, was, uh, I worked at a big, giant church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I ran their junior high ministry. And I would meet with my boss, and I would be like, and every time I'd meet with him, I'd be like, I have a new idea. We're going to start this program, and we're going to do this thing, and we're going to do this thing. And he was like, that's a great idea, but here's what I need you to do. Every time you start something new, you have to kill something that's old. And so, so he made me make a list, and it was called a takeaway, leave behind list. We use it all the time in ministry. And it's, this is the thing that I'm going to leave behind so that I can take with me the thing that God wants me to pursue. And here's what often we do. We, we, we have a vision of what we could do. We have a kingdom dream. We have a plan. We have this idea of what God has called us to, but we don't want to leave anything behind to actually get there. And so it gets squashed out. There's not margin in our room, in our life, for that, for that stuff to fit in. And so we have a vision. We have a dream. We know what we're supposed to do. But the rest of our life is so busy that that dream just gets squashed out, and there's nowhere to go with it. So verse 11. I think verse 11 is probably the most powerful verse in chapter 2. You know what it says there? So I went to Jerusalem. Like, that's a big deal. That's a lot in that tiny little statement. He gave up his standing with the king. He gave up his life as a cupbearer. I'm guessing that was a pretty comfortable life. He lived in the palace. He got to hang out. There's big screen TVs everywhere, right? There's good food every night, right? It's a comfortable life. He's giving up all of that, and he's saying, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go on a long journey because Jerusalem was not just down the street. Right? I'm going to go on, it was probably, what I read this week was like it's a three-month journey for him to get there on a donkey or a camel or something that's not fun, right? I'm going to go on this long journey, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to leave my comfort, and I'm going to step into the unclear, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to surrender my life to the calling that God has on us. One of the greatest disservices that's happened in the church in the last 50 years is that we've made the church believe that the only people that are called are the pastors. It's just a lie. It's nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture. So I used to go to youth conferences when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys did this. I would go, and this is actually where I felt called to ministry, so it worked for me. Uh, but I used to go to these youth conferences, and I would stand there. And at the end of the youth conference, when everything was over, they would do the eighth like invitation. They would sing, um, "Come as you are, or just as I am." For the fourteenth time, the pastor would say, "I see those hands," and he would say, "I think there's more." And some kid would start crying, and then more kids would come up, and then it start. And then somebody was like, "I don't even know what they're talking about," but all my friends are going up there, so I'm going up there. They would do all those things, and at the end of it, they would say, "God is calling some of you to full-time Christian ministry." And I want you to come forward if you're called to full-time Christian ministry. And what full-time Christian ministry meant was doing what I do. 
What they should have been saying is every single one of you who just came forward, you are full-time ministers. You are the priesthood of all believers, Scripture says. All of you are pastors. All of you are priests. All of you have a kingdom assignment. All of you have a kingdom dream. God has placed inside of you a work that he has prepared in advance for you to do, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and when you step into it, the kingdom will come to life, the world will be rebuilt, and you'll come to life as well. We've lied to each other. And we've said that the only person who's called is the pastor. The only person that hears from God is the pastor. I can tell you right now, there are a lot of people who are sitting out there who have better things to say than I do most weeks. There are a lot of people sitting out there who hear from the Lord a lot better than I do most weeks. I just pray every day that God gives me something. But this is when our communities come to life, is when we start to depend on each other when we start to lean on each other, when we start to all believe that we're all called, that we're all ministers of the gospel, that we all have a kingdom assignment. Isaiah chapter 58, if you want to turn with me, uh, verses 10 through 12. I love this passage, and I want to just hang this passage over the rest of this series for us, because I think this is the word for us. It says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and if you satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Something's going to come to life in you when you serve, when you sacrifice, when you risk, when you lay down your life for the kingdom. And then the Lord will guide you continually and he'll satisfy your desires in a scorched place and he'll make your bones strong and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. One of the reasons we feel empty and dry is because we're not doing anything that, has, that, that is sending anything out. And so we feel empty and dry. We feel like we're in a desert. We feel like we're in an empty place because there's no pouring out ever. We're just gluttons. We're just filling up every Sunday. And this is, listen to verse 12. This is, this is the passage I want to hang over us. This is what I want us to think about. When you think about Cobb County, this is what I want you to think about. When you think about Wheeler High School, this is what I want you to think about. When you think about all the neighbors in proximity to us who don't know Jesus and aren't in the kingdom, when you think about all the needs and the hurts and the brokenness, all the people who need blessed, all the people that are hungry, all the children that don't have parents, all the kids that are unprotected and need somebody to protect them, when you think about all of these things, verse 12 says, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you will be called repairers of the breach and restorers of the street we dwell on. I'm telling you right now, you give me 10 people who will commit to that, and we'll change this community. You give me 10 people who will radically reorient their lives around that, and we'll say, the ancient ruins that exist here in Cobb County, we're going to rebuild them. We're going to raise up the foundations that have been broken for many, many generations. We're going to be repairers of the breach, and we're going to be restorers of the very streets that we dwell on. And so many of us, listen, we're coming out of the fire, and there's a smell on us. And we know that it's there and we're exhausted and we're tired. And you know what I'm tempted to believe sometimes is like, I just need another vacation. I need to go to the beach for another week. I really like the beach. I was there last week. It's great. I just need another, I need more vacation time. But you know what I really need? I need a dream. I need a purpose. I need to be doing the things that I was created to do. Because when I do the stuff that I was created to do, I don't get exhausted. 
I get energized. When I do the stuff that, I, that I've been called to do, that I've been equipped to do, that I've been gifted to do, when I step into those things, my energy levels rise and I get excited and I get fired up. And so what we often think is, well, I just need a break, when what we really need is we need a dream. We need to live the life that we've actually been called to live. We need to step into the places where we can be repairers of the breach and make a difference in this world. So, so this is our invitation. It's our invitation. Uh, this week, uh, two of the boys that used to play on my basketball team in Louisville, Kentucky, I've coached AAU basketball for the last 25 years. Uh, it's something that we've been doing forever. My team just won by 20. I just got a text right before I got uh, on the stage. They lost both the games that I coached yesterday, but when I wasn't there today and was preaching, they won. So I think it's just because the Holy Spirit answered my prayers when I wasn't there, not because I'm a bad coach. Uh, but I've coached basketball for a really long time. It's been a ministry for me. I love the game, and I love the boys that I get to coach. And this week, I got a text on Monday from two of the boys that I had coached 15 years ago in Louisville, and they said, Coach, we're moving to Jacksonville. We're coming through the area. Can we stop by and see you? And so I brought them out there. I brought Cole and Caden, my sons, out there. My sons are 18 and 16 now. They knew my sons when they were three and five. And so my sons were like dressed up like Spider-Man being the mascot for their games. That's what they remembered them for. And they went out and they played basketball together, those boys and my sons. And they went out there and they just hung out. And, and at the end of it, I got to talk to those boys and they were like, hey, coach, like, we just want you to know you, you made a difference in our life. Like, it mattered. Uh, he told the story of that team, the team that they were on. I coached for four years. Five of those boys are in prison right now. So I didn't do a great job with all of them. But he said, like, we think the reason that we're not, we didn't follow them. We didn't get into the gang stuff. We didn't do these kinds of things was because you were an influence on us and you were with us. And I started to think about, man, like, I want more stories like that. But I realized there was a huge sacrifice for me with those boys. Those boys were at my house all the time. Those boys ate everything in our house, right? We, we never had a full pantry when I was coaching basketball in Louisville because we had an open house policy and those kids were over all the time and we had a hoop in our backyard and they were playing in the backyard and they were spending the night. They went on vacation with us four summers in a row, traveled with our family. I paid for everything for those kids. Like I was willing to sacrifice because the kingdom mattered. And I just started thinking about all the areas of my life right now where I just feel too tired to sacrifice. I don't know if you're with me. Or I just feel like the smell that's on me is like, ah, man, I would love to do that, but whew, that's going to be hard. I'm going to have to change this part of my life. I don't, I don't know that I want two other boys with us on vacation this year. I don't know that I want to buy $100 more groceries a month. I don't know that I want to sacrifice for that. But here's the thing, guys. We don't get the breakthrough if we don't give the sacrifice. It just doesn't happen that way. And so how do we become the people who are convicted and who step out and say, I'm not going to be too busy to lead where the Holy Spirit's calling me. I'm going to radically reorient my life around the calling that God has for you. And if you want us to help you with that, that's actually the vision of our church. That's the one thing that we want to do. Nothing in our vision talks about growing a big Sunday gathering. 
Nothing in our vision talks about we're going to build the biggest church in town. Everything about it says we're going to mobilize the believers in our midst and we're going to activate them on mission in their everyday life. And if you want that, we would love to help you. And so come find me. Come find Douglas. He's the guy that's wearing the matching jacket of mine today. We decided to be like a boy band today. Uh, and so come find me. Come find Douglas. Find Allie or Meredith or Melissa or Tyler and all of us. We would love nothing more than to sit down with you and say, I've got this dream, but I don't know how to get there. I think God's stirring my heart to rebuild, but I don't know how to get to Jerusalem. I don't know where I need to find favor. I don't know where I need to go. Or I'm a dreamer and a planner. I'm a planner and not a dreamer. We would love nothing more than to help you figure that out. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Listen, begin with your heart. What's God breaking your heart for? Begin in prayer, mourning and lamenting over what's broken. Take a risk. Plan and prepare and radically reorient your life around your calling. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would give us courage that you give us wisdom, that you give us strength. I pray that you would teach us to be the people who can walk into the ruins of our world and the broken places and all the things that need to be rebuilt over the last year or year and a half, whether that's personal relationships or whether it's systemic injustice. We pray favor from you, Lord. I pray big dreams, Lord. We don't want to do a bunch of stuff that we could do without you. We want to do stuff that we say that's only because of the Holy Spirit. It's only because God. It's only because of his goodness. It's only because of his mercy. It's only because you showed up. And so we ask you to empower the dreams that we have in our hearts. We ask you to give us grace and mercy on the road. Teach us to be rebuilders. Teach us to restore the streets that we dwell in. Teach us to be repairers of the breach and empower us every step of the way. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna move into a time of communion and as the band plays, you can open your cup and there's the juice and the bread in there. If you didn't receive it, there's some tables here and here where you can grab those elements. Uh, our prayer team is back here. Rick and Becky would love to pray with you. And there's some folks over here that would love to pray with you. And so if you want to just pray, if you've got a dream or a vision that you want to pray for, or if you're hurting or have something going on in your life and just need some people to come around you and be family, we would love to pray for you in those spaces. And so uh, we're just going to move into a time of worship now as the band sings and directs us. Take communion. Pray. And as we do, I just want you to think about, Lord, what's the dream that you've put in my heart? What's the thing that you are teaching me to mourn over? What's the invitation for me to take away from this message?